Water. It's in almost everything we see and present in most of the things we do. Water supports the biodiversity of ecosystems while also hosting its own completely unique environment. Whether fresh or salt water, these ecosystems can tell us about the state of the life surrounding them. And humans, animals, and plants alike depend on access specifically to fresh water. In the Chicxulub mountain range on the Gaspe Peninsula in Quebec, Catherine Lambert and Louise Chavry are working to understand and protect that crucial element to a healthy mountain ecosystem, fresh water. I'm Sig Clausen Rosewarn, and you're listening to the Canadian Mountain Podcast. This episode focuses on understanding the aquatic ecosystems in the Chicxulub Mountains. But before we get started, I'd like to take a moment to appreciate the land we work on and the people we work with. This podcast is produced across the ancestral Indigenous territories, now referred to as Treaty 7. The Canadian Mountain Podcast acknowledges the land where we work on as a home to the Nitsitipi, Iahe Nakoda, Sitna, and Métis peoples. As journalists and media makers involved in Indigenous knowledge mobilization, the collective responsibility of our podcast is to strengthen our relationships with Indigenous peoples through storytelling and partnerships. Catherine Lambert is the Executive Director of the Mi'kmaq Indigenous Fisheries Management Association. And Louise Chavry is an associate professor with the Norwegian University of Life and Sciences. Together, they are the knowledge leaders for a research project called Developing Knowledge on the Status of Aquatic Ecosystems in the Chicxulub Mountains. While in three vastly different time zones, Catherine in Eastern Quebec on Mi'kmaq territory, Louise in Norway, and myself in Alberta, the three of us sat down for a virtual conversation about their work and research in the Chicxulub region. One of our practices with the Canadian Mountain Podcast is to introduce ourselves and take the first moment of our interview to talk about the land. So if we could just take this opportunity and you can tell me about yourself, where you're working and your connection to the land you're on. Well, hi, everyone. So my name is Catherine Lambert-Koizumi. I'm the executive director of the Mi'kmaq Wolastokwe Indigenous Fisheries Management Association. Um, I live in the Gespegewagi, which is the territory of the Mi'kmaqs of, of the last land. So we are in eastern Quebec in the Gaspé Peninsula. Um, I grew up, however, in the Laurentians, and I've always been um, well in close contact to the land. Uh, I, I studied as a, a wildlife biologist. I worked on wolves and bears and caribou and doll sheep before and now for the last 10 years I'm um uh, I switched to the ocean and aquatic environment, so I work with fish and whales and uh, sea cucumbers and other um uh, animals of the ecosystem and I'm uh, very proud to uh, serve uh, three nations uh the Mi'kmaqs of Gaspegag, the Mi'kmaq nation of um Gaspeg and the Wolastogewigwasbego First Nation in the lower Central. I'm Louise Chavary. I'm an associate professor at the Norwegian University of Life Science. Uh, my expertise is salmonid in general. Uh, I have um, my main background was the Canadian Arctic, so I had a lot of um, experience working with the indigenous community uh, of the north, working on some questions that uh, they had about fish. Um, so you may wonder why. Uh, uh, a professor from a Norwegian university is was interested to jump on a project in the Gaspe uh, Peninsula. In the Gaspe Peninsula, well, it's because I am originally from Gaspe, so I have a, a really an important connection with this area since I was born there and raised. Um, and when I left for Norway, um, I felt that I wanted to start a project there uh, to have an attachment to uh, to what I call home. Um, and I met Catherine 10 years ago in Alberta when we were both at university. Um, so we did overlap a little bit and I knew that Catherine was back to Gas Bay uh, working with uh, the uh, MFWEFMA. So I thought it was a, a perfect combination um, here as to go for a, a project that I felt uh, will be close uh, to home and at work. Do you mind briefly explaining the Mi'kmaq word uh, sigsog and what it means? 
Yeah, so zigzag means impenetrable barrier. Uh, so it uh, represents the mountains that are um, one of the steepest in our area, and it uh, represents a range of mountains that are hard to go to. The, the, um, the pitches are pretty steep in some places, and so it was a, a way for the Mi'kmaq uh, who were back then traveling by um, dog sled and um, hiking, and so it was a hard, um, hard place to get to, but a very rich place to get to. Tell me a bit about what the culture is like in the Shikshak region. Yeah, so the Shikshak uh, Mountains, they're in the middle of the Gaspé Peninsula, pretty much. Uh, and it's uh, surrounded by water. So we are uh, surrounded by the estuary on the north and the Gulf of St. Lawrence on the on the east and on the south, the Bay of Chaleur. Uh, so uh, it's a, there's a lot of water, a lot of rivers and lakes, and uh, it's connected to the ocean that's not far away. And um, the we have uh, two communities very close by that I work for, the Mi'kmaqs of Gaspegag and the Mi'kmaq Nation of Gaspeg. And from time immemorial, they've been um, attracted to the mountains for various reasons. Uh, the most reason would be uh, hunting and fishing uh, for their own needs. Uh, but uh, we, um, we can tell that this area is a very uh, special and important to their culture and to their uh, subsistence over the last uh, hundreds of years. And what policies or practices currently exist to protect the aquatic ecosystems in this region? So right now, the policies are uh, mostly uh, around the provincial government, the MFFP. They are the one who are um, protecting the inland of Quebec in general. So it includes the Gaspé Peninsula. There is a park, a provincial park in the Shake Shack that also um, add a layer of protection for that special area. Um, but mostly for Gaspé Peninsula, because it's a really coastal um, like area, a lot of the resources are um, marine resources that are commercially exploited. So a lot of focus have been done on marine ecosystem mostly, and that's where the majority of the policies are so far, uh, because we are commercially exploiting those marine uh, fish and shell um, and like invertebrates. Um, resources. Um, so in terms of inland, there was a little bit of policies uh, focusing on forestry because we do have some forestry inland and the impacts that it generates on the terrestrial flora and fauna. There's been really little focus on lakes and uh, rivers. Uh, for some degrees, there has been some um, focus in terms of salmonid, uh, salmon, it's like Atlantic salmon because it is an adromus, so they come back in the rivers. So river did generate a little bit more attention, but lakes are really often totally ignored. Uh, and when we're thinking about the shake shock, um, there is a protection in place, but there's not a lot of knowledge on it. Um, so that's uh, so that's something that has been left a little bit um, for the Gaspé Peninsula because there was so much attention put on the marine resources and the forestry that uh, the freshwater system have been a little bit ignored. Yeah, no, I think it's you made a good uh, portrait of the situation. I think it's uh, it's a bit complex with the provincial and the the. Um, I know the um, like First Nation groups are not. Um, uh, like uh, they could be more involved probably in the management of the area, but that's uh, uh, something that uh, is coming with time and uh, just something that we'll maybe uh, talk about again and later in this interview, but there is a recently like the Mi'kmaq acquired a cache, the cache. Uh, so it's like a, um, a spot where they will develop uh, uh, some tourist accommodation and uh, gas station. And there's also the Cascapedia Society, that is a salmon uh, protection society and the management for the fishing also that is managed um, jointly with the Mi'kmaq uh, of Cascapedia. So, so I think uh, there's a, some sort of protection there, uh, but it's not an official protected area uh, by any uh, any means however there are some talks perhaps uh, in the future to um to to do more areas but it's not uh, there's nothing coming in the immediate uh, absolutely not what does the shikshak mountain range mean to the people living there 
Uh, I know when we, we did some interviews as part of this project to uh, question the participants in uh, some selected people in um, the communities of Gaskapegiag and Gespeg about the significance of the mountains for them. Um, there's still some some um, some parts that the, the employees are still working on the report, but what came out was that it's a super important area. It is a, a source of uh, food and uh, fish and people like to go there to resource themselves as well. Um, in the old days, it used to be, uh, well, uh, I would say they, they carried some sacredness to, to the area uh, where people could um, could go and get so much food, including the caribou. And now the caribou is a very small and threatened population. Uh, but back then, it, they used to be abundant and plentiful, and they were also deer and moose and um, the bears and wolves and, and uh, some smaller animals as well as so a lot of hares and marmots and and uh, there were some um, uh, a lot of fish as well and there's still uh, some some fish it's still an important activity for them uh, various kinds of trout and and I think um, that. Uh, it's a very uh, important place and even for medicinal plants. Uh, so they could go in the mountains and get uh, specific plants for uh, healing um, some community members uh, who needed some, um, some medicine. So it's a very important place. And even to this day, it carries um, an aura of, um, I would say, uh, you feel just different when you're in the mountain as opposed to the rest. And it's undeveloped as opposed to the rest of the landscape. So it's a very uh, special and unique place that is very important for the population around. So absolutely. Louise, did you have anything you wanted to add at all? Yeah, like, I mean, it is a coastal, um, like the nature of the settlement are coastal in Gaspé. Um, so the they had, there is a, a really big attachment to the marine environment, but at the same time, um, this mountain range is the most, like the biggest in eastern uh, Canada. So the people living there have a, a huge attachment to that range in terms of outdoor, the terms of hunting, the terms of uh, fishing um, for uh, trout and uh, and char um so even the sentiments are not there people were and are commonly coming in that mountain range um to enjoy those mountains and now there's also a, a really important economical aspect with the tourism linked to those mountains range and now we'll kind of get into talking about specifically your guys's research. So what is the main purpose of the developing knowledge on the status of aquatic ecosystems in the Shikshok Mountains Knowledge Hub? Maybe I can start and then I think that Catherine could complete with the the, the vision uh, that the, the MWEFMA had. But uh, in terms of uh, and it's Catherine and I both are co-leaders as equal partnership in this. And we, we established many goals for this project at different level. Um, the first level that I wanted to bring is to develop um, some baseline knowledge because there is a strong effect right now about climate change. Um, and we are realizing that the majority of the change are during the winter. So we wanted to start to have some winter sampling uh, campaign happening with the with the summer, uh, which is really rare in Canada to do winter um, field work. So we wanted to start this kind of new approach uh, to develop baseline uh, knowledge on those alpine lakes because they are changing. But if we don't know how they all were, uh, we like we don't know the past. It's hard to predict the future and to make good uh, management decision towards that. So we wanted to establish a project um, to increase the knowledge, the knowledge and also to increase the expertise in the Shikshok region. Uh, we wanted to establish a network uh, of different um, sphere uh, to try to increase the likelihood of succeeding this protection of those lakes. So, uh, and to do that, we, want to, we wanted to establish a Sentinels Lakes that will be uh, there for a, a long-term monitoring program for those freshwater um, ecosystem in the Shikshok. Uh, and we wanted to uh, generate some interest among the Mi'kmaq members uh, that uh, Catherine is representing. And we wanted to share some knowledge around that. It's a different uh, perspective, different knowledge. And when you are able to gather that, you have different evidence, different um, 
ideas, different attitude, different values that brings a lot of positiveness in the protection of those resources. Uh, and we wanted to also have some scientific training for underrepresented um, members, which includes the Mi'kmaq youth, but it also includes uh, women in science. Uh, and finally, from my perspective, uh, we wanted to develop and implement that winter uh, sampling program that has never been done in Quebec, rarely done in, in Canada. And that's something I'm really um, proud of. So I understand that one of the goals of the hub is to establish a network of Indigenous knowledge holders and researchers to improve knowledge of aquatic ecosystems in the Shock Mountains. What does that network look like? So in the first year, and now is it weird, uh, well, uh, in the first two years of the project, we were able to create a network to uh, focus on champions, uh, people who've been in the mountains, uh, who spend a part of their life there, or who would inherit, have inherited a lot of knowledge from their ancestors in their place. So um, we have a strong, uh, small but strong team in my uh, office at MIFMA. Uh, Adam Jerome and Tanya Kondo, who have been working with us for um, almost 10 years, well, 10 years for Adam and, and a bit less for Tanya. Um, they've uh, organized a camp last year, uh, a camp to meet in the mountains. It was a cultural exchange um, camp where uh, the Mi'kmaq families were invited, uh, but we invited some experts, uh, some um, holders of uh, ecological knowledge, Mi'kmaq ecological knowledge, uh, would uh, go and show the medicinal plants in the mountain and uh, also how to make drums from moose hides. And they had a lot of um, cultural activities so that the Ecology and the culture are um, well; they're mixed together in the Mi'kmaq culture. And ecology, the nature is is um, is really a, uh, in depth embedded in the in all the cultural, most of the cultural activities, I would say. Uh, so it's been an amazing experience. Um, and uh, from there on, there was a group of uh, people who were recommended to do the interviews. And so there was a selection of members who um, uh, are part of this network, who uh, knew about the mountains. And we were even able to send um, uh, members to um, the Canadian Mountain Network uh, meeting in Banff uh, was last year. And uh, and that was a very uh, positive um, cultural exchange about mountain ecosystems uh, between different uh, indigenous groups of, from the all over the country. How does this group gain more knowledge about aquatic ecosystems? I mean, you kind of mentioned a little bit about like the camps and stuff like that, but. But one way, one way is to participate also in the activities, uh, like the data collection activities. Uh, we've been limited. Uh, we had a small group, small crew, but we, we uh, did uh, send some people um, last year uh, with uh, Louis' team in the mountain to collect some data. Uh, so that was a way to get some insights about the data collection and uh, to learn about new techniques, to the scientific techniques that are used to um, uh collect different um, variables and data in, in the mountains. Uh, we're hoping to pursue that. Uh, we're hoping the project will um, go on to a, another step where we'd have uh, uh, some staff dedicated to the data collection and to, to really um, uh, be involved. But but through the, um, another thing that we did is through the, the, the work we are doing uh, some um, education and awareness uh, project also. So one of our members is working on a coloring book now to be distributed in the community. So we're trying to uh, get modern data about the trends and the status of knowledge of the SIGSOG uh, through this project, uh, but we're also trying to um, share the feeling of um, awareness and, and uh, uh, care for this land to, to the younger generation as well. Louise, did you have anything you wanted to add? No, I think that's um, that's a really well-broad um, perspective that was given by Catherine. So uh, there was also maybe that one last thing that maybe I could add is that we are also um, planning to maybe give some um, general public a presentation, both on the scientific aspect, but also from um, uh, the MLWIFMA uh, perspective on the Shake Shock. So uh, it, it will be a, an exposure of a project from different angles. Another one of the goals is to promote scientific training of underrepresented groups. 
such as supporting Mi'kmaq in science. What actions are your team taking to support scientific training for Mi'kmaq? So uh, we are involved in uh, various um, education and awareness activities in the local school. Uh, for example, we, we participate also to the um, uh, career day uh, that we had at the, um, just uh, last March. We had a career day in Gascapegiag and our team was there and we talked about the SIGSOG project. We talked about the various projects that we have and uh, we invite uh, the students to come and work with us for a summer or, or to give their application ones for when they're finish their school so that we can hire them uh, so we're really trying to um, we we always have some trainees position and uh, some students position and we try to uh, bring a positive experience in science for um, the, the people at junior uh, or junior high um, high school level uh, so that they can uh, really get interested about the aquatic uh, ecosystems, that they can uh, also see all the possibilities for their future. Um, so that is very important for us. And in the mountains, of course, in the, during the camp, we selected youth uh, to come along, uh, the elders uh, to come along their family. So it was like a big um, communal family gathering, I would say. It was like a big feast, actually, for for um, most most of them. Uh, but it was um, very uh, focused on the conservation and the richness of the mountains. So I think that is uh, very important to maintain this kind of activities. And I'm glad that this project could contribute to that because it was the first time in my, uh, as far as I'm concerned, that I know uh, where they could organize a camp in the mountains like that. So that's very valuable. Well, I, I just wanted to add that, um, as Catherine mentioned, uh, we did have uh, the staff from uh, the MWEFMA uh, coming with us doing some uh, field work. So there was some training aspect towards that, uh, especially with the winter, because it was new for everyone. <laughs> Even like the people from the university, it was new. Uh, but it does provide uh, some platform to learn new techniques, new approaches, um, and new partnership. We, we try really hard to recruit um, Indigenous students. It was really a, a goal and, and we did really hard to try. Unfortunately, we were not able to um, recruit it at this time. And that's where uh, the message that Catherine was uh, saying uh, as like presenting it as, you know, to the youth really at early age as that they are exposed. And then um, when that is rooted, we can try um, a little bit later to do it as undergrad or as a master or as a PhD um, program. Um, so we did try, unfortunately, at this time, we were not able. So we did, we went to focus at early age. I think if I can add, that's a very good point that we said. It's, it, um, we have a small community, so we have to work really hard to make it known that, that there's an opportunity here and come on and try it and everything. But I think uh, with time, it's it's uh, going to get easier. But we we um, there's still a bit of uh, legwork to do there. But I think we uh, we did a lot of effort, but we had younger students willing to go out in the field. But it was more challenging to find masters or PhD students um, because uh, people who go to the university, it's a small community and they have to go away from home and maybe they will not study biology, they may study other fields. So that's the, that was a bit, the, that is the challenging part, but we try to make maybe make it up with um, um, well younger students who could participate in the project. And if I, I can add another small thing, we did try to reach out to other communities as well. Um, but the challenge with Quebec University is that they're in French. So the programs are in French and that often eliminate some other uh, groups that we could have uh, trying to hire a French entry. So how does the Mi'kmaq knowledge sharing camp play a role in informing Indigenous youth while affirming important cultural practices? I think it did play an amazing role into that because it brought um, the, the, a group of, uh, I think there were 20 people in the mountains and it for as a series of uh, three full days. And uh, they had uh, some drum um, making activity, some drum uh, dancing activity. You know, they had uh, stories sharing. Uh, they did some canoeing, some hiking, some medicinal plant um, gathering and collection. So, so it's, it's been a really rich and rewarding experience. I, I uh, only um, the feedback I received was uh, 
authentic and and it was it was deep like i i could tell that this experience could have been a life marking experience for some of the, the participants and i think um it it did play an amazing role to inform the youth there were several youth present and it was a, a chance to also exchange with the older generation with the elders and to receive from their culture so it's been a really successful um highly successful event for us and very important event in um, the last year's uh, project activities looking specifically at the climate change monitoring the hub does how are you assessing the cycles of ice and snow carbon and nutrients or biodiversity to monitor the effects of climate change in the Shikshak mountain range? Yeah, so this was a, a really ambitious project. Um, and one of the ambition to it uh, was that we try to tackle the entire ecosystem. Uh, we didn't want to focus on one specific thing that exists in the Alpine lakes. We felt that to, to develop proper management directive and to protect those resources, we needed to have a global view of what was happening. And to do that, we needed to uh, look at the physical structure of the lake, um, such as ice and snow. Um, so we did measure uh, how much snow and how much uh, ice were uh, on, you know, in these lakes during the winter, and then uh, looking at the structure of those lakes as well in the summer. And we did have data logger in the lake. So it's a chain that you put a logger on it and they record the temperature of the water. So we did have, we are, ha we're going to have a good um, understanding of the temperature of the water through the column uh, through the year which is a really important for anything living in uh, the lake to have that physical aspect covered and how it's changing. And then uh, the nutrients, we also quantify it uh, in terms of the abundance and how it's changing through time. The chlorophyll represent the productivity of it as well, which is the basis of anything in the lake because it is the productivity of the lake uh, and how it's going to influence the higher um, organisms like in the tropic level how it's going to influence um, their abundance and survival um, so and, and then we did measure anything that could live in the lake so the phytoplankton the zooplankton the macroinvertebrates and the fish uh, and again we did look at what kind of species uh, there was in those lakes because there was really little knowledge uh, about what were could be found in those lakes. So there was like this mandate of the park to protect those lakes, but they didn't necessarily know all the time what they were protecting. And uh, that's due, well, the, because freshwater is often forgotten, but also it's a big territory and it's not always easy to access it. So you don't always have the chance to go to those lakes and, um, and sample them and know what they are. So we try to provide those uh, knowledge of the community and species composition. And then we did also measure uh, the abundance and the biomass of those individuals and those lakes. I can, if I go a little bit on more the technical side, which I don't know if it's a good thing, but we did also different, um, we use different tools um, to arrive at many, um, information and different level of knowledge. So uh, we did some genetics uh, that provides a lot of information, you know, from the past and the structure of the populations. We did some uh, fatty acid and isotopes that gives a lot of information about how energy is transferred uh, from trophic level. So from the bottom of the, the, the chain to the upper part of the chain. So we're trying to see how the ecosystem is functioning and if it is changing with that through time with the climate change. Yeah, and, and maybe I can just add one more thing is that we're also in our interviews with the uh, the knowledge holders, we're also uh, getting information from them to complement the information uh, that is uh, collected in the field. So we did ask uh, specific questions about climate change, about the variations in the climate, in the snow regime, in the catastrophic events. So we did ask questions about that and uh, that the, so that the Mi'kmaq um, ecological knowledge will also inform this research and give a bigger um, picture of the mountains uh, after the study is done. Yeah, and if I can add another uh, one thing that I forgot to mention, um, 
and it was mentioned a little bit earlier, but one of the really key pieces of this project is that we're not just sampling in the summer and having a snapshot of what's happening in during that season. We're really doing winter and summer, which that winter sampling um, is quite novel. Like it's it's rarely done in North America. And by doing it, I understand I understood why <laughs> it's quite difficult uh, to go in the winter and sample those lakes. It requires a lot of energy uh, and logistics to do it, but it's really rewarding in terms of the kind of information we are getting because we have a better uh, understanding through time of what's going on. And again, as I mentioned before, uh, the biggest changes right now are during the winter season. Are, are there any findings through that monitoring that you're able to share at this point or like anything you've learned from that monitoring? So, yeah, I like we, the, the students are just starting to work with the data. Um, so it's, it's really early on, but I can share a few observation and few small finding uh, that has been done um, in, in the past year and a half. Uh, so there were some species that were believed to be in lakes and they were not there. And we found other things there <laughs> that uh, was totally surprising. So even when there was some knowledge uh, from the, uh, the provincial government or the park, it was not necessarily, and it was from the 70s. So it was either incorrect or totally changes. And that's hard to really distinguish. So uh, there was new, there were species that was unexpected or the assemblage of the species was unexpected. Uh, we uh, also saw that some species that can be in the lake, some Arctic char, for example, uh, they display a lot of variation, even though they were like, we are looking at lakes that are closely related one to another. They're, they're not that far apart, but you can have one lake with really big chars. And like, I'm talking like, arctic size which is really surprising to see and the lake next to it will have like really really tiny <laughs> arctic char that will be mature at like really really small size so there's such a big diversity in a really small area and that is also true for all the component of the lakes like when we were drilling in the winter the color of the the water was really different from one lake to another like i had that this pure blue icy and the lake after was like kind of brownish so that shows a lot of different nutrients and colorophile level and the species composition uh, was really different uh, there's a master student right now working at Chikutimi on microinvertebrates and zooplankton and with the analysis that she is doing right now, we see that the community is shifting really much so uh, between the winter and, and the summer. That means that it's not the same species that are found and not necessarily at the same um, abundance. So there's major shift in the lower trophic level uh, in, in the winter versus the summer. And we see that with the fish when we capture in terms of in the summer, they will be really segregated uh, by species uh, in, you know, versus like in the literal versus like deep water in the open water. Uh, whereas in the winter, they are really all in the really, really shadow um, of those lakes. Uh, and it's my hypothesis, which is not tested yet, is that probably in the summer, need, like they cannot access it. It's too warm because it's really shallow and they're cold water species. And in the, in the winter, it's cold. So they come in and it's just a free buffet for them. So there's like those like really things that we don't know. And, and those shallow water in the winter is really cold. We did measure the temperature and it was zero degrees Celsius. And we didn't think that a brook trout will want to go in the winter in a zero degrees Celsius. Um, water temperature to eat, but they are, the, and not just brook trout, like the Arctic char and the lake trout, they are all there in the really shallow water. We don't catch much fish in the deep water. Um, like after two or three meters, it's really difficult to catch fish in the winter. So there's those anecdotal um, findings that it's quite amazing that we were not expecting that. One thing that I might add, it's not a result, but it's something that happened that will provide interesting results is that the two winters that we have been working uh, in the park were 
extremely different. So last year, uh, winter was a really snowy um, winter and really cold, um, quite extreme. Um, we were dealing with snowstorm of 20 centimeters plus every two days, like which was really challenging for towing field work. Uh, whereas this year it was mild, really mild and not a lot of snow. Like we were dealing with half of the snow and half of the ice, which will have huge impact during the winter, but also in the summer. Uh, we're expecting extremely low water level for the summer because there is no snow. There will be no runoff. Well, there will be some, but really less than usual. So it will have some cascading effect. So we don't have results now yet linked to that, but we 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 did hit two really, really different winters, which should give um, interesting results to see the effect of uh, variation in the environment. What risks are associated with climate change in this specific area? Yeah, well, if, if we if we go on with the, just following after uh, Louise, uh, our experience of the two winters that were really, really different, I think it, it gives an idea that, that it uh, it's a very extreme, as, as most in mountain environment, there there's a lot of extremes in, in the mountains often. Uh, there can be uh, some avalanche, a lot of snow or some dry droughts. And uh, I think um, with... Uh, climate change. What we see generally is an overall warming uh, of the of the climate, but there might be um, some changes in the well, the regime of snow and rain. And and one of the problem is that we don't know that well the, already the baseline, so it's hard to see how it will be impacted by climate change. Um, really, I. I I, I think the distribution perhaps of some species will be affected by climate change. Um, we know that the one of the wildlife species that a huge problem is the caribou. They're on the brisk of extinction right now. There are uh, very, very few individuals left. And um, climate change uh, may be one of the factors. Uh, of course, we know that habitat destruction is very important in previous you know, hunting from previous generation. There's a lot of things going on for the caribou but they're barely surviving at this point and um but the 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 fact that uh, there's um there's an increase in the moose population there's a lot of diff um, variation i would say in the ecosystem maybe louise has more to say about what she thinks will be the impact of the climate change yes so just uh, to add a little bit on what uh catherine really well resume um like the alpine of the Shikshok, like you're in the southern part of Canada, right? So often you'll be at the southern limit distribution of many species. Uh, and the Alpine Lake uh, is like offer uh, a cold refugia for those species. Uh, there are cold water fish, cold water invertebrates or zooplankton um, that they will not necessarily have that habitat uh, in lower altitude. Um, so the Alpine the mountain offer alpine zone it offer a, a mosaic of ecosystem to be coexisting uh, to juxtapose one to another so it allows a really broad range of species to be there which include really cold water species that normally you will find in the arctic but now because those alpine lakes are there it's possible to have uh, these species and i'm thinking here specifically about arctic char and Arctic char in the Shikshak, it's quite special. Uh, we have a subspecies that we cannot find anywhere else, uh, which is Salvelinus alpinus focassa. And they are red listed uh, by the provincial government. So they are vulnerable. Uh, and any small change of temperature can have a huge impact on their distribution, abundance, and survival of that population, uh, since they're already at the southern range of their distribution. So if you go just a little bit higher in temperature, it, it might lead to an extinction of those populations. So you have a chance with uh, those climate change um, impacts to lose that diversity that we are currently having in those um, ecosystems. Who is most affected by these changes? 
I'd say the, the the wildlife itself and those those animals living in the mountains. I think they're the first the first ones. That, like Louis said, if some fish species are so rare that they, there's a change in their environment that makes them susceptible to disappear. Um, we have the chance. I think I think the humans are quite resilient for now. So and there's not the, a lot of. Um, uh, people actually living in the mountain. They're more going there for hunting, for fishing, for resourcing themselves. But I, I would say the 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 wildlife and the the, the plants. The uh, maybe Louise has better answer than me, but I would say they're the first one we're going to be affected. Those living in the area. It's it's a tricky question. Is what is most affected? Um, but. What I can say on it is that often with climate change, again, the freshwater is forgotten. Uh, and freshwater sustains most of the biodiversity on Earth. So it like freshwater represents less of like a really small portion of the habitat that Earth offers. And yet across the world, freshwater sustains most of the biodiversity that you can find. Uh, and Biodiversity is a key aspect for anything that you're looking at in terms of ecology. Um, if you don't have a diversity, it's really, it impacts everything um, around it. Um, so protecting the diversity is a key element when we are talking about climate change. It's really something that we are focusing a lot and to try to act on it to preserve um, that biodiversity that we get and, and freshwater ecosystem are a key in it and it is often forgotten. So I don't know if we can say that freshwater is more impacted than the marine environment or the forest. I, I think that's not necessarily the way of thinking, but one aspect that we should increase in our thinking is that freshwater uh, ecosystem are as important the terrestrial or the marine environment and we should act. What is the interaction like between the Mi'kmaq communities and like the tourist populations that are, are visiting the Sheikshak areas? Um, like I said a little bit uh, earlier, the, um, there's a big interest to develop the tourism opportunity from the Mi'kmaq um, communities. And then now, they, for example, the Mi'kmaq of Gescapegia acquired the, La Cache. So it's a place uh, at the entrance of the mountains where they will actually, they're building chalet this summer, maybe it will open next fall or in spring of 2024. Uh, but they're investing uh, a lot and there's a lot of people working there at the moment to uh, to be in a gate of entrance in the mountains where uh, people can get gas and food and uh, sleep there. And eventually they could uh, propose some uh, hiking, you know, guided hiking and uh, activities like that. Uh, in the Gespeg community, uh, they also have um, a sugar shack. Camp, so where they make their own maple syrup. So they started that last year. Uh, they also, uh, also all the communities in, in they have their community hunting, uh, where they go. That's not touristic, however, but but it's a use of the mountain that they that they keep for their communities. Um, they have uh, communal fishing, uh, especially salmon fishing as well uh, in Gaspeg, and they um, also think about uh, doing some uh, some camp. So this, I think, they see an opportunity there uh, to val value the land and also value their culture uh, in a context where more and more people from uh, the rest of Canada want to go in the mountains to do hiking, canoeing, kayaking, or they want to do um, um, backcountry skiing, for example, or uh, snowmobile touring. There's a lot of activities going on in the mountain. It's a very popular spot. Uh, there's a limited number of um, chalet and camps where you can sleep so if there's a few that are in owned by the communities i think it will be a plus for them um as far as i know and i'm not in the politics or anything like that but there is some partnership and some some uh talks between uh, for example the provincial parks and the uh, communities to recognize the community's right to to, to be there and uh, to provide some opportunities that they can um uh, start uh to in a sustainable way to, to value uh, the place with their own uh, cultural activities and offer it to the rest of the world. 
it's a pretty exciting. Uh, I think a lot of possibilities will come up and, and will emerge in the next few years. And there's uh, some efforts going on, and I think the communities are very excited to, um, in some ways, to regain uh, access in the mountain. Not that it was there was no more access, but now if there's some um, facilities in place, it will help the youth to go there as well. And, and it will help um, people who may not have um, all the skills to be by themselves, you know, in, in the mountains to, to go and take advantage of this uh, beautiful place. And what other policies or practices might still be needed to protect aquatic ecosystems, but like you said, all, all ecosystems in the Shikshak mountain region? I think on our part, one one uh, initiative I would like to see emerge in the next uh, in the next year or two is uh, the Guardians. Uh, the Guardians is a program uh, where the uh, some community members can be trained to be uh, like a warden in the forest and protect uh, the area and also promote uh, good um, practices uh, with the hunters or the hikers who are there. Uh, so they're a little bit of steward or protector of the land and I think that the initiative exists in uh, some communities uh, and now there are some talks uh, to have it for Gascapedia and Gaspeg and I think that would be very very um, uh, needed in our area uh, to make sure that the warden or uh, the guardians are taking care of the land and the waters uh, in near their communities including the Sixak Mountain. And if I can add, I work with the Young Guardian program in the Canadian Arctic, which was so rewarding and such a great experience. And again, when we were talking about recruiting recruiting um, people in the grad studies or undergrad studies from uh, the, the community, this program was such a great help to expose the youth of what we were doing because they were young uh, guardian and we did bring them in our field camp and they were um, working with us through that program. So there was a huge exposure about uh, what the biologist work was and getting them exciting about the connection uh, of uh, science and fish and being involved in that process, which made a huge difference of their, like how the youth responded and were interested about their project. And unfortunately, we did not have that in, in well, I don't know in Quebec if it's right, but in Gaspé uh, to try to engage uh, the youth there uh, in our program. Yeah, they do have enlisted Gustav Guardians uh, in the for the Salmon Rivers, so they do have that initiative there, and I think it's a very inspiring and and a very well working initiative. Uh, but it doesn't cover the Six Lake Mountain; it's more uh, it's west. It, it's not very far, but one hour west of there. But really, I think uh, we can see them. We can hear a lot of successful uh, testimonies all over the country from the Guardians program, and I think um, it has to be implemented soon. I hope uh, in our area as well. Is there anything else that you'd like to share that I maybe didn't ask about or touch on? I know I skipped a few questions there, but... I think uh, the only thing I'd like to share is I hope that this project uh, will continue because I think it's a we only could start to collect a little bit of data. Uh, it, it time goes fast and it's um it's a big ecosystem. It's a very rich ecosystem, and uh, it's very important for the Mi'kmaq people around here and uh, for all the Gaspasian people as well. So I think we um uh, I really hope that we can uh, make this uh, monitoring of the six into a long term initiative because uh, we can only um, gain a small knowledge from short-term initiative. The longer it is, the more we get in terms of understanding the area and also finding some perhaps mechanism to cope for climate change and, and habitat this you know this destruction and then other threats like this so um but so far it's been a great program and i think uh, and i'm really glad that louise uh, uh and i could collaborate on that project to to uh because it i think it's um it's a beautiful ecosystem that's of, too often forgotten so. i'm just going to uh go on your trend because i think that it was really well said um you know, it, it was a great program. It was a short amount of time to try to do something big. And I think that we did tackle a lot of great stuff, uh, but it takes time. It takes time to understand an ecosystem. It takes time to try to implement the two eye sign, um, you know, procedure. And we were just at the tip of the iceberg with like that two years and a half 
project timeline. Um, so we 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 started to push the wheel, but we if it it is if we have more time, you can do more and at every level in terms of science, in terms of engaging the community, in terms of uh, Braiding those knowledge and do it in a respectful and meaningful way. Um, so often we try to rush those things. And um, if it's one thing that I learned at working in the Arctic is it takes time and it takes time at any level. That was Catherine Lambert and Louis Chavery the leaders for the developing knowledge on the status of aquatic ecosystems in the Sheikshok Mountains project. Talking to Catherine and Louise brought up some valuable insights. Much of the protection for natural ecosystems in the Eastern Mountain region has been directed at marine and forestry resources due to exploitation, leaving lakes and rivers with fewer legal protections. With their research project, Catherine and Louise, along with their team, sample the alpine lakes during the winter to get the most information about climate out of monitoring the Sheikshok aquatic ecosystems, which is a seemingly rare way to do field work in Canada. Understanding this area helps decision makers push for better management of this freshwater ecosystem. Lastly, protecting this ecosystem is not only about gaining data, it's also about reciprocity to the land through ancestral knowledge and cultural practices of Mi'kmaq communities as well as the cultural exchange of knowledge between Indigenous groups who are each connected through the mountain ecosystems. That's it for this edition of the Canadian Mountain Podcast, in partnership with the Community Podcast Initiative at Mount Royal University. Thanks for listening. I'm Sig Clausen rosewarn host and producer of this episode. And thank you to Meg Wilcox and Kyle Napier for guidance. The Canadian Mountain Podcast is produced from Treaty 7 with the goal of bringing together Indigenous knowledges with settler research and sciences through the shared platform. We are committed to collaborating with Indigenous peoples in respect of the contribution of Indigenous voices and knowledge holders. We are actively learning to decolonize our production practices throughout this series and encourage other media professionals and organizations to decolonize their practices as well. Be sure to join us again for more stories surrounding mountain places, whether that be in your own backyard or from around the country. And be sure to tell your mountain-loving friends and colleagues. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts, and you can learn more about the Canadian Mountain Network at canadianmountainnetwork.ca.